Thank you, Dave, for reading the Word of God and for presiding today. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together where you welcome us into your presence, where this place is a place where grace will be given, where hearts will be challenged, minds opened. Lord, we ask all these things from you. We ask that you give us uh, fertile hearts and uh, willing minds to listen to your word and to receive it as your word and to be changed by it. Lord, mold us into your people now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our series in going through the books of the Bible, and we've come to Ezra and Esther. And um, we are looking at this very famous passage in Esther where she basically comes to a resolution where she says, in order to save uh, the Jews, I'm going to go to the king, risk my life, break the law of the land, and if I perish, I perish. Um, it's really interesting because essentially if you take a look at the books of Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, you can kind of sum it up and, um, in one word, control. It's all about control. It's all about these nations who are in control, these, the people of God who have lost control, and God who is sovereign over it all, who is in complete control, right? Um, you know, when you think about control, it's, it's a really interesting topic because typically when it comes to control and human beings, you're kind of on two polarizing ends. One is where control is a bad thing, right? Where it's like, don't be controlling. Uh, don't be so like uh, wanting everything a certain way, right? And uh, you, people who are, when, when, when you consider control, it's considered something that's against or antithetical to relationship, right? Um, then there's the polar opposite of, the, of control, which is control is a good thing. The more control you have, the more quality there is and the more excellence, right? Uh, for example, I remember trying to cook for the first time when I started living by, on my own, and first, the first thing was eggs and ramen, right? And um, that's kind of easy to do, but um, when I started to get more ambitious, I tried cooking rice, right? And uh, I tried cooking some Korean foods, like Korean salads and, and some soups uh, and some stews. And I realized that when I didn't follow the recipe and I just tried to do it on my own with no previous experience of cooking, I totally messed it up. It didn't taste anything like what I was used to tasting. And, and there was, it was because there was like no control, right? But when I followed a recipe and I, I, I added the right ingredients and I added the right amount, it was... It was really good. It tasted pretty authentic, right? At least to me it did. Uh, but someone can argue, well, what about those people who just kind of throw things together and it comes out perfect, right? Well, even that, there's a certain level of control and experience in cooking that, that was there before that moment when that, um, when that meal or that 
uh, that food was made. So you have, when it comes to control, typically, if you tend to one or the other, you'll you'll look at the 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 other perspective as something negative, right? So. If you don't like control and you, you value freedom and independence, and uh, you'll, you'll see people who want control as a negative thing. But then if you're on the side where you like control and you like quality and et cetera like that, um, you, look at, you look at the other people on the other side who want less control and you see that as uh, um, something negative as well. You know, when you come to this passage, you, you find a girl named Esther, and she wants control. There's another guy, her cousin named Mordecai. He wants control. Uh, there's also the Jews who are weeping and wailing because they've lost control because now Haman has um, gotten the ear of the king of Persia to destroy and commit genocide against the Jews. And so Haman is trying to have control. And in the midst of all of this, the name of God is not even mentioned once in this, Bible, in, in this book. And you're like, what's going on? Did God lose control, right? What's going on here? And so what you find is in order, when you're in a situation where you feel like you're losing control, you're gonna to run to certain things to help you gain that back. And the two things that pop up here, when you look at verse 13, um, is social status and ethnicity, right? And this is really interesting because Mordecai is addressing Esther, who's now queen of Persia, right? And he's basically saying, you know that Haman is planning to kill off the Jews and commit genocide. You know this. And you're trying to hide in your royal robes behind your royal doors in the palace. And what he's basically saying is, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape, right? That's basically what he's saying. So what he's actually telling um, Esther He's saying, don't look to social status, right? That's in the king's palace. And he says, do not think to yourself, you will escape looking to the status of who she is in that, in that nation. Don't look to that in order to, in order to deliver yourself away from this calamity that's about to happen, right? So we do that sometimes, right? I mean, if you, if you believe in the American dream and if you grew up studying hard, right, getting the right grades, going to the right school, getting, landing the right job, right, you're going to feel like you're using your socioeconomic opportunities and privileges to deliver yourself. Now, that's not a bad thing to go through that, and God has given that to us, those opportunities, the people around us, our intelligence, our reason, our volition, our willingness, right, our determination, all of that is God-given, right? I'm not against that. But what I am saying is there's something, it's something different when you turn your socioeconomic opportunity, your social status, you turn that that's supposed to be a partner for you. 
Your social status is supposed to be a partner for you for mission, and you turn that into a savior. So social status, ethnicity, is what we're talking about here, right? So Esther is trying to hide in the palace, right? She used to be just one of the Jews, right, in the kingdom, but now she's Queen Esther, right? So she's using social status as a queen to escape the ethnic danger that is going on around her, right? And sometimes we do that. A word for that is called assimilation, right? And if you don't know what I mean by that, many of you will understand. It's when you, being part of one culture, you go into a host culture and you completely want to leave your ethnicity and your ethnic culture behind and disconnect yourself from that in order to completely embrace the host culture, right? And it's not wrong, right? But when you look to your socio, your social status or your ethnicity as a savior, instead of treating it as what God meant it to be, which is a partner for you, your ethnicity, your, 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 who you are, your culture that God gave you, that you were born into, your social status that you are currently in or that you grew up in or that you, you, you shoot for in the future, those are gifts that God is giving you to be a partner with you to fulfill the, king, the commission of broadening and expanding the kingdom of God. They are not your saviors, right? So when you create those things to be gods, when there should be only one God, and you make your ethnicity, and you make your social status a, a redeemer and a, re, a deliverer instead of a, a partner in ministry, right? That's when you're wanting to control your life. And when you do that, you're actually saying, I want to dethrone God. And I want to make a new God. I want to make a socioeconomic God. I want to make an ethnic God, right? And you see, that's what was happening in Esther's heart there. And Mordecai, he was like, don't do that, right? Now, in the midst of all this, there's God's providence. Like Mordecai, when he's telling Esther, don't hide, you have to do something about this crisis that's happening to your people right now. And um, what he says is, is really interesting because I think, and some of you have heard me preach from this specific verse before, but... Mordecai basically threatens Esther. And yet, the text doesn't show us whether he knows this for a fact or not. And this is what I mean. Look at verse 14 in Esther chapter 4. He says, Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. He says, uh, If you keep silent at this time, right? Verse 14. If you keep silent at this time, God's going to save the Jews that you're that you're not trying to save, God's going to save them somehow. I know this. And the text doesn't say how Mordecai knows, knows this or whether he actually knows this, and he's just assuming. But what's clear is that Mordecai has a deep, real faith in God. Like, he, he doesn't know, right? It seems like he doesn't know. But he has this faith, this conviction, right? Um, and he says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, this is the key. 
This is where all of us can fit into. Now, some of us are more like Mordecai. Even though we don't really know, we go on this conviction, right? And there's emotional frustration for Mordecai because he doesn't finish there when he's talking to Esther, when he's using a messenger to talk to Esther. But he says, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, the Bible, Esther never said, or the Bible never tells us that Mordecai was some sort of prophet sent by God. There's no linking Mordecai to the office of a prophet, right? But he's saying all of this. He's saying, so what's happening here, right? Um, Mordecai kind of believes in a, a retribution theology. What I mean by that is he kind of believes that if you do good to others, good will be done to you. If you don't do good to others, then evil will be done to you, right? Um, he kind of believes that because he says, if you don't do something right now, Esther, there's going to be something bad that's going to happen to you. You're going to die and your, your household will die, right? Your father's house. But we don't know if Mordecai was right or not in, in communicating this way to Esther, but what we do know is this. He believed that it could be God's will for Esther to have become queen during a time when the Jews, her ethnicity, right, the, her people were in danger, where they were th being threatened with genocide, right? That's what's happening here. And what's interesting is that Esther was trying to run to social status. She was looking to social status, hiding in the king's palace, as a savior, when again, you know, that was given to her as a partner, right, by God. But she also, after she hears this from Mordecai, she changes her, she changes her approach, right? But she also doesn't think that she's the savior. She doesn't think that now she has the power to change things. Very different, right? Look at verse 14 through 17, the latter part of verse 14 through 17. I'll read it. Uh, it says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is what Mordecai is telling the messenger to tell Esther. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, verse 15, and going on to 16, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Right? You see, when she's doing that, she's acknowledging her human responsibility, what she needs to do. What is what is what is the responsibility that she has? Her responsibility is not to save the Jews from genocide. That's not her responsibility. Her responsibility is to go to the king, even though it's against the law, and talk to and, and petition this to the king. That's her responsibility. Her responsibility is not to change the king's heart. Her responsibility is not to make sure that the king is doing something good to save the Jews. Her responsibility is to go and die. To communicate in such a way where her life, she does not know whether she will come out of it alive or dead. She said she used the condition, if, right? If I perish, I perish, right? 
Now, how many of us take this kind of approach to our social economic strivings? When we dream of something, how many of us take this approach where it's like, well, if I perish, I perish, but I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go for it, right? Um, here's the thing. When you look at Esther, what she did, she was responsible for communication. Mordecai says, if you keep silent at this time, what he's basically saying is, you are responsible, it is up to you to communicate to the king, right? And also what Esther says in verse 16, she says, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. So this is Mordecai's responsibility in the midst of this uh, geno uh, genocide that was, that's about to happen. His responsibility is to gather community, to make a community, right? Bring people together, right, around this. So communication, community, and it says, hold the, she, Esther says, hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days. What's going on here is prayer and fasting. Her responsibility is to pray and to fast at a time like this. Why did people fast? They fasted because there was something greater that they, want, they wanted to take with God. And it was so important that, it, that the physical survival of the personal body and the physical sustenance that's needed to eat and live, it, that's not even important anymore. What's important is this issue, whatever that is. That's why people fasted. And they depended on God, right? Now, people fast in all different kinds of contexts, religious or non-religious, right? But when it came to fasting and its association with Christian, like, it's not Christian prayer, but uh, prayer in the context of the God of the Bible, when you're praying to God and you're fasting before God, it is an utter surrender and dependence upon God as being the one in control over this situation and nothing else matters. That's what fasting is, and that's what prayer is, actually. You know, how, you don't have to, like, raise your hands or whatever, but how many of you guys have prayed for specific things for your life? Needs. I'm talking about needs, right? And it's not wrong to pray for needs, right? When, um, uh, when, when there's something uh, difficult happening in your life or something joyous, even, and easy happening in your life. Um, it's not wrong to go to God and to pray for God to help you. But, but, that's not what prayer is about. That's not, the, that's not the nature of prayer. Prayer is not about you getting your needs met. Prayer is about God's kingdom being done. Right? So when Jesus taught us to pray, right, the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Whose kingdom come? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us that before you ask for your daily bread, you are seeking the kingdom of God first. And that's why Matthew 7 says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added on, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Prayer is not about having your needs met. It's about God's will being done. You see also that, you see that same example in Gethsemane. 
when Jesus prayed right before he was betrayed in the garden, he prayed, he, he, he communicated his need before God the Father. He said, you know, if it's possible for me not to die, he used poetic language, if it be possible for this cup to pass from me, right? Meaning, if I don't have to drink this mission of suffering, if I don't have to experience the crucifixion, please, let me not experience it. He, see, he communicated his need, his emotional state. But what did he follow that up with? The whole prayer is not about his need being met, but about the Father's will being done. He says, but not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, in a time of ease or non-suffering, when he taught us the Lord's Prayer, and in a moment of suffering, when he was be about to be betrayed and about to be crucified, right? He prayed God's kingdom to be done, right? And when you approach prayer in such a way where you're only asking for your health, for your career, for your family, for um, your happiness, your personal happiness, in whatever way you want to define it, you see, you're not... You're, you're basically saying, God, I want to be in control, and I want you, with all your gifts and all your power and all your knowledge, I want you to help me keep control over my life. That's what that is, right? When you ask God, and your prayer, the, the, the tone and the, and, the, and the movement and the direction and and the, the joy that you get from praying is just from God fulfilling your immediate needs, whether they be physical, emotional, whatever it is. You're asking God to stop, stop being God and let me try it out for once. That's what's happening, right? Prayer for Esther, when you fast and when you pray, it's not about your will being done. It's about God's kingdom. His will being done. And the way that that looks like in real life is that you communicate in such a way and you surround yourself, you, you participate in a community that um, in such a way where you are together on a mission where you are comfortable allowing God to dictate whether you live or whether you perish. Now, it sounds very extreme, but there are many ways you can perish, right? Like, for example, if you prepared 10 years of your life for a certain degree and a certain kind of life, and God calls you elsewhere, and you spent tens of thousands of dollars on this major, and God calls you something to something else, right? Would you be willing to perish? Would you be willing to give that up, right? Another thing is, um, if you wanted a family, so that, that's for people who are more career-driven, right? For people who are more family-driven, if you wanted a certain kind of family, and you wanted that, that dream life with the, with the picket fence and everything, and God calls you elsewhere, are you willing to perish? Right? What if, what if you're single 
and you want to be married, but God calls you to be single. Or maybe it's the other way. Maybe, you know, you, you want to be single, but God calls you to be married. Like, would you be willing to give that? Like, that's serious, guys, right? Like, I know people. I grew up with people. They didn't want to. For some reason, they were mostly women, right? They were like uh, older sisters in Christ in the church I grew up with. You know, I grew, yeah, they would say, I don't need a man. I don't want a man, you know. Um, I don't want kids, right? I just want to advance my career. And you know what? Some of those people, they're married right now. <laughs> and they have kids. And they're, they're really thankful to God. Um, so it goes either way. And it doesn't matter if you're more career-minded or if you're family-minded. What if God calls you to die, right? I mean, God, Jesus Christ, his call. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He calls you. He says, come and die. Come and die, right? And what that is, is giving up control. And you see, Esther, she realized she's not the savior, she also, Mordecai helped her realize that her social status in the king's palace was not a savior, nor was her ethnicity. Her ethnicity wasn't a savior either. And she wasn't a savior. And even her choices weren't a savior. Right? Here's the thing about mission. You know, she says, if I perish, I perish. Right? This is amazing. Like, who goes on a mission like this? Like, who goes on a mission saying, I will financially die for this mission? I will, I will you know, emotionally die for this mission, right? Sometimes, like, we, uh, what is it? Our guest speaker, right, Jeff Jefferson at the retreat last Sunday, um, if you were there, you know, he said, you know, holiness is not being this happy person who never feels sadness or anger, right? That's not holiness, he said, right? I mean... What if, what if God calls you on this mission and he says, I want you to emotionally die. I want you to financially die. I want you to career-wise die, right? Um, what kind of mission does it look like when someone goes on mission not to bolster their resume, not to bolster their personal emotional happiness, but someone goes on mission to die to all of those things, to die to their resume, die to their emotions, die to, well, I'm not saying you have to be stoic, but what I'm saying is die to the addiction to feeling, you know, superficially happy all the time. What if God calls you to die to that, right? What does that look like? Are we looking to our social status and even our homogeneous ethnicities for salvation? Or are they partners with us to go on mission where we come and die? Right? What does that look like? Right? That's what control is about. And when Christ, who had full control over everything, he's equal with God, and yet he gave up his place with God, he did not think that being equal with God was something to be grasped, something to be held onto, something that he had to make sure he didn't give up. Right? But he came and died. The one who had all control gave that up to go on mission to save those 
who had no control. And the quality of his ministry, the quality of that mission was determined by the quality of the Savior. If you think that you can be a Savior to anyone, to your family, to your career, to your finances, to your emotions, right? To your community and your friends. Because you're making yourself, you're trying to control yourself to be that kind of a savior, the quality of the redemption, the quality of the deliverance will also be on par with the quality of the person who's doing the saving. And so if you want, right? If you, if you yearn for something that is free from brokenness, that is free from um, the messiness and the, and, the, and the marredness of sin, we need a Savior who is greater and bigger than ourselves. We need a Savior that is greater than social status. We need a Savior that is greater than ethnicity. We need a Savior that is greater than someone who's making a choice to do good. And that Savior, is a, there's only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. Um, I want to challenge you guys. Christ came to die. For Christ, you see, Esther, when she says, if I perish, I perish for the Jewish people, right? She didn't know. So in one sense, she is a type of Christ. She's similar to Christ in that she's willing to die, to be on mission, to save a people. But in another sense, she's nothing like Christ because Esther didn't know whether she was going to live. She didn't know if she was going to survive it or if she was going to die. But Christ did. When he came to die, he knew he was going to die. He knew it, and he came anyway, right? He knew the risk. He knew he was going to lose his life. He knew he was going to perish, and he came to die. You see, if Christ, if from our modern mind, if we were to think about that, we would say that's really stupid. After assessing and analyze, uh, analyzing the risk factor of a certain decision, of an ethnic, socioeconomic, or whatever decision, you would be stupid to take on that risk when it's 100% guaranteed right, that you will have loss. But, you see, it's not about intelligence and it's not about the smartness of a move. It's about God's kingdom coming. It's about God's will being done, both in your heart and in this world. And when you have a mind that is fixed upon the kingdom of God, and you are willing to trample down your little kingdoms that you are creating for yourself, to join God in building his palace here on earth, you will be able to say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. Because there has been a savior who has gone before us, who has won the war to bring healing to all the brokenness that exists in our hearts, in our minds, 
and in this world. And you're trusting that as long as you fight these battles that come up that God has placed in your life in a way that is faithful to his calling and to what he is trying to do in your life and in the people around you, then his kingdom will come. Not that our choices bring his usher in the kingdom, but our choices are to be faithful in in battling, not in determining the war. The war has been won. We are called to do battle until that day of triumph and victory is proclaimed. I invite you, when you look at those things that you are looking to, to help you, um, to save you, they are bad saviors. They are bad gods. Okay? Whatever it is, career, relationship, whatever. But they are really good partners. Your finances are really good partners. They are really good friends. Your, your family, they are really good partners. Your vocation and your career, it's a really good partner to you. But once you start making them your savior and you dethrone Christ and you put these things in his place, that's when you're saying, my kingdom come, my will be done. Let me close with this. I actually shared this with one, maybe one or two people in this group. But you guys know the Lord's Prayer? Well, I kind of reworded it um, to make it what I'm calling not the Lord's Prayer. Right? So just so you know, I'm going to close with this. So I'm going I'm to say the, the, I'm going to say what the Lord's Prayer is not. And then if you know it, say, it with, say the Lord's Prayer with me. And then we'll say the Lord's Prayer at the end. And then I'll close off in prayer. And we'll have the praise team come up. Right? Actually, praise team, if you want to come up now, you can. Right? But here's what I'm calling not the Lord's Prayer. My servant in heaven, useful be your name. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it should be in heaven. Give me this day my every desire and forget my debts, not as I remember my debtors. And lead me not into admonishment, but deliver me from misfortune. For mine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. And there is no amen after that. (laughs) And if you would join with me, if you know it, if you don't, no worries. Just listen and let your heart join. Could we just all arise at this time as we say the Lord's Prayer together? (laughs) Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you. Through this passage in Esther, we see that 
we take the gifts that you have given us in our lives and instead of treating them as you wanted us to treat them as partners in ministry in mission Lord we look to them as saviors Father crush our idolatrous hearts and rebuild a heart that is completely broken and that has wiped our hands clean of any desire for control or for being God or playing God. Father, give us the hearts to come before your presence as servants of the true God and help us to be surprised and help us to be rejoicing when you call to us not merely as servants but as sons and as daughters of the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you. Thank you for sending Christ to redeem and save us. Thank you for not expecting us to save ourselves for we that would be a condemnation to death thank you for the work of Christ help us to look to that help us to rejoice as we see you building your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven we pray in Jesus name amen let's sing our response to the song together